0: Please be seated. As Camper mentioned, we now return this morning to our study of the Book of Romans, something that we began uh, in September, looking at chapters 1 through 4, uh, then taking the break for Advent, where we uh, spent time celebrating the uh, the very one whom this book points to, uh, which every scripture points to, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. We now return uh, and uh, pick up our study in Romans chapter 5. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open there. If you don't have one that you brought of your own, uh, there should be one in front of you or somewhere in proximity to you. We invite you not only to open that, but uh, if you don't have a Bible, then take it with you. Uh, and, uh, but we would encourage you to open your Bible as we study this morning. Uh, we believe it is the Word of God. And we believe that everything that is said from this place ought to be confirmed in this book. And don't take my word on anything, Uh, but that whatever it is that we teach here should be a reflection of what is found there. And the only way we know that is that if you have it open and either look while you're there or or make notes uh, and consider what has been said later. But what we do also believe is that these words are life, the life of God that he uses to shape his people, to enable us to become more and more like Christ, what we long to be, whether we recognize it or not. And so he uses even this time where we study the word together to shape us in that way. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Holy God, we do come now with thanksgiving. You have gathered us. You have promised to be in our midst. And you... I have promised to be at work even within us through this word. We pray that you would open our minds that we may have the ability to, to think that you have given us as a gift. Uh, that you would open our hearts to receive uh, the truths as they pertain to us, whether universally or to us particularly. We pray in per- specifically that you would speak to us, shape us, Grant us hope and joy and peace that is promised to those who are in Christ Jesus. May we respond in obedience, thankfulness, and joy that you may be glorified, not only with the words that we speak, but with our thoughts, with our emotions, in our obedience. We pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen. Romans 5, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, we have now received reconciliation in the word of our God. What's in it for me? What do I get out of this? They feel like very inappropriate questions. Often they are the hallmarks of one who has a a, a quite self-centered and selfish attitude. The exception would be is if somebody is making an offer to you or or making a a promise to you. And those questions are pertinent to us this morning because this passage before us, the first verses of Romans 5, invite us to take inventory of the blessings that are promised to those who are in Christ Jesus, those who stand in grace, is the, the language that the Apostle Paul uses early in this passage. And he makes this promise and says that There are certain things that belong to those who are in Christ. Now, Romans 5 is a a major transition in this letter, and letter is sort of an understatement if you've you've not been with us, or even if you have, and it's important that we be reminded. Uh, This letter, which was originally penned as a missionary support letter, Paul was planning on going to Spain, Rome was the largest city, Probably make strategic sense, as any missionary would, write to your strongest potential supporter, see if you can get the cash, and then you can go and do the ministry. But he also writes down, saying, this is what I'm going to take to the people in Spain. This is what they need to know, the same thing that you need to know, the same thing that people everywhere need to know. And then Paul writes this piece, this, this letter, that becomes the magnus opus of theological statement that has never been exceeded. It is the greatest theological piece that is ever written. And we see a, a major turning point, and it's introduced even in the first word of chapter 5, therefore, since. Now, some of you who are Bible students, you already know this, but it's a good, important thing to remind. Whenever you see the word therefore, it's important that you ask, why is the therefore therefore? What is the therefore therefore? And, and because it's, it's a hinge, it is, it's a, a link. And the word therefore always, and specifically in this case, is a link to everything that has gone before with that which is about to come next. And Paul begins this chapter in the point of transition and saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and then he begins with a list of things, or he begins the list of things that are benefits that come to those who have been justified. By faith. Paul says, therefore, since. And so he's bringing attention to everything he's written before. And it's important that we are reminded of that. And Paul is cause he's speaking a theological word, justification. And most people don't speak theological ease. It's not a word that comes up in regular conversations. Now, the word justification, in one sense, might, because some of us, we get into Uh, discussions with people. People question what we have done or what we have not done and we offer what we believe to be a justification for what it is that we have done. In other words, the word justification means the reason that I was right to do what I did or to say what I said or not to do one of those things. It is the position that we offer and it has the same definition theologically but a very different source. So when I offer an explanation of why I did what I did or didn't do what I have been told I was supposed to do, I'm justifying myself on the basis of my own wisdom or my own action, my own understanding. And that might work at home. It might one day. It doesn't often. But it will never work with God. The theological word justification means to be made right with God, and Paul is pointing back to that, and he has just really laid out how that has come to be. You may remember in the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans, Paul pretty much just lays out every person who's ever been born. He cuts the, the legs out from anyone who believes that they have any goodness in themselves, that they should be able to stand before God. He breaks them down into three categories, and he first deals with the people who we might call the relativists, the people who are the, you know, the masters of their own faith, the captains of their own ship. They are the arbiters of what is right and wrong. They don't seem to have any outside sources, and so their whole life and their morality is based on their own instinct. And Paul points out that that instinct is actually corrupted by sin. And then after he levels them, he turns his attention to other people who are probably looking and perhaps snickering at the, uh, the, the accusations of being leveled with them, people who would be considered good people, certainly would consider themselves good people. We would call them the moralists. And Paul says, you know, you think that they're bad, you're no better. And then after he explains the condition of people who have a moral standard, who try to do good and may do mostly good, He then turns to his own people, to the religious people, the Jews at the time or Christians of the day, and he says, now, the reason that they are in trouble is not simply because they're absent a religious justification for their moral behavior. You're no better either. And so whether it is somebody who is a God to themselves, somebody who has some moral bearing, or somebody who is deeply religious, every one of us stands before God as people in need, Paul summarized by saying there is no one righteous, not one. And then as he moves on and explains the condition that every human being is in, he then writes this in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, apart from a set of rules. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, that from the very beginning, there is a testimony to the way the righteousness of God was going to be made known. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, the idea that we are made right with God by believing in what Jesus Christ has done. What has Jesus done? Jesus, who is God in his own nature, had become man, become one of us, assume the nature in which we have committed sin. And then he lived a perfect life, but he bore in himself, he took the punishment we deserved, being crucified on a cross and rising again for our justification, for that we might be able to believe. And in him, we see God. In him, though he was sinless, he took sin upon himself. And those who believe in what he has done are declared to be just, justified. And justification is really a a superior position than merely being forgiven or being pardoned. Paul deals with that in the first few chapters. See, if, if you are pardoned, if you are forgiven, that's certainly better than living with the fullness of the weight of your offense. But there is still a record of your guilt. You're guilty, but will overlook it. You've paid for it in some way. Justification is like credit. In justification, you were declared not guilty because the price of your offense is paid by another one because the other one takes the guilt of your offense to himself. And Christ Jesus has taken that offense, your sin, my sin, on himself. And then in what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the the great juggling of the books, all sin is counted on him and all of Christ's righteousness is now counted as ours. And so when we are looked at, when we stand before God, we stand justified because God has been at work. And again, speaking to those who may kind of cringe at the whole idea of of studying theology, I, I do want to say, not only do I understand, but I also want to challenge you because this particular doctrine of justification is vital to living the life that God has laid out for us understanding the place of justification, understanding the implications, and then, as we'll look here this morning, understanding the promises of justification. It's vital for us to have that relationship with God in in the way that he has designed. And many, many Christians uh, who uh, are truly believers and truly love God, who truly are saved, uh, they live without the, the joy, the freedom, the benefit of what understanding justification brings. We get it confused One theologian uh, from a, a generation ago, says that most of our problems are because we confuse justification and sanctification. We get them turned upside down. Now, for those of you who are already kind of wondering when I'm going to stop talking about justification, now I introduce this whole other word, for sanctification. I uh, will move on in a second. We'll get to some of the practical aspects of what Paul's talking about, but I want you to understand how important this is. See, justification is, as we, as I kind of just alluded to, as Paul articulates here, it's the act of God, whereby. He pardons, in a sense, but he takes your sin, puts it on Christ, and accredits credits you with the righteousness of Christ. It happens once and for all. It is the act of God. Now, that is the status, that is the condition that those who believe have and standing before God. Now, sanctification always accompanies the justification. Those God has justified, he also sanctifies. Paul will write that later in this letter. And sanctification is the process by which we live. And we grow in grace and die to our sin. The problem is most people, even when we know better, we invert those things. Justification is the foundation, what God has done to make us in a right relationship with him. And then out of that promise, we live and we grow, dying to sin, growing his righteousness. But when we turn that upside down, which is a very common thing to do in our minds and in our emotions, we base our relationship with God on our own performance, thinking that if somehow we merit something, then we will be declared just, right with God and be able to have that relationship. You see why that would be problematic? Because we never do enough. And even if we could, we would never be certain that we could do enough. And so turning that upside down is not only wrong theologically, I'm going to you know, give you an F on your quiz. It is draining from life. And Paul starts this transition here, having already laid that foundation, wiped out our own righteousness and says, but here's how you can stand, because there's a righteousness apart from yourselves, apart from the rules that is found in the person of Jesus Christ and those who trust him, they have been justified. Now Paul says this. Therefore, since we have been justified and we're justified by faith and faith alone in what Christ has done, we have peace with God. And so we have certain benefits. And the first one they list here is peace. Peace with God. Now, it's an interesting phrase that Paul uses here because a lot of people don't think of themselves ever having been at war with God in the first place. So now we're told that we are at peace with God. It doesn't matter whether you were aware of your consciousness, uh, uh, aware of of your being at war with God. Any rebellion, any lack of honoring of God, is a declaration of war against Him. And here, having been justified, we're told we are now at peace. It's not just a ceasefire that you know God has promised that He'll withhold until further notice. He says there is now a peace that He has brokered fully at His own expense. It belongs to anyone who believes in Christ. Now, no doubt there are some who are sitting here thinking, well, I don't feel at peace. And the reason for that is there's a difference between peace with God and the peace of God. The peace of God is the inner security, comforts, contentments. That comes when you know that God is in control and that you are in relationship with Him. Peace with God is the, the standing, it is also the foundation for the peace of God. In other words, knowing that God is not only not angry with you, that He's not mad at you, He's not looking to do you in, but He loves you is the foundation of being able to live at peace, with peace, with whatever it is going on in our lives. It is when we are able to begin to apprehend that we we have peace with God because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, that we are now in a relationship with God, that the peace of God can begin to work in our lives. So whether you feel at peace or not, Recognize the promise of God is for all who stand in grace. Again, is the word that Paul uses early in this passage. Your status and your relationship with God is you are at peace. It's a peace that He has purchased and that He has broken, and a peace that we can experience. Another promise that we, have, something that we receive is that we see in this text, although not quite listed the same, is joy there's another bible study principle that if you see something that is repeated in a particular passage it's probably important and in this beginning of romans chapter 5 we see the word rejoice that is listed and repeated three different times it's in verse 2 it's in verse 3 and then it's again it's in, in verse 11 and so, while the word rejoice is used to modify something else, it's pointing to some of the other things that belong to those who are standing in grace, who have been justified uh, through faith in, in Jesus Christ, it, it itself is a condition, it is a gift that is given by God. This joy. Uh, that, uh, uh, that we can experience. We have joy in our lives, and we have joy in these other things as well. But joy itself is, is a gift. There's joy. I, and I know many of you who have probably heard many, many sermons, and I've probably said it many times myself, uh, joy and happiness are not the same thing. Joy is your condition. Happiness is a, is a fleeting thing. And, and there is truth in that, so I don't want to claim heresy on everything I've said in the past. But sometimes they're also the same. And the experience of joy is what brings us happiness the The root word in the Latin for uh, for this is the, is the same word as as leaping and so you can automatically imagine just somebody who's jumping up and down with excitement some of you with kids at Christmas that got whatever it is that they had been wanting and they jumped up and they were showing this this gift and jumping up I got whatever that excitement that joy, that delight that is accompanied by happiness is really what is in view here, that we can have this joy, we can have a happiness that expresses itself that makes us leap inside. Because in this passage we see this modifying everything else, we recognize that the promise of God is that all who stand in grace have the benefit of Joy in their lives, but again, Paul, as he's writing, uses the word rejoice, and he says, "Rejoice in," and so the and he tells us the third thing that we see is that we rejoice. The third gift we receive here is shown in verse two when he tells us that we rejoice in hope, the hope of the glory of God. So there's, there's a joy that comes in having hope. One of the worst things that anybody can experience is a sense of hopelessness. In other words, we're, we're living, we're existing, we're going, something seems to be moving us on. We don't know toward what, and we're not looking forward to whatever it is to come, and we don't seem to have any way of changing that, and so we feel hopeless and therefore helpless. And that's one of the most miserable feelings that anybody could possibly experience here in in this life hopelessness helplessness is is misery and yet paul says since we have been justified we can rejoice in hope in the hope of the glory of god now sometimes the glory of god is one of those things it's a throwaway line What what do we mean by the glory of god it's one of those things we just speak about and we're not really sure uh exactly what that means or if it can't be defined But I believe what Paul has in mind here in, in terms of what the, uh, the, the glory of God really has, has kind of two uh, aspects to it. Uh, often it, it deals with its a radiance, It's the, the being able to see the invisible qualities of God somehow being at work. And it has to deal with weightiness. In other words, God is substance. And if we think about it, both of those things are important as we consider the glory of God and why we would have hope and why that can bring joy for us we see the the radiance of God, it's his work that we can see. We can't see God who is a spirit, who is invisible and yet we can see him at work by the laws of of uh, nature that are around us that, that preserve us that we can uh, provide uh, that we can uh, experience by God's provision He provides for our, our needs the beauty that He has created all are expressions of the character and the provision and the nature it is radiating the the glory of God and so when you stand before the mountains and your breath is taken away or you stand before the ocean and you feel both insignificant and empowered you're just awestruck because of this those are the intangible um, expressions of the invisible God, but you can see them and you can experience them. And those are what brings joy into our life. Some of you may have seen uh, uh, the, the movie Dead Poet Society uh, a number of years ago. Robin Williams was playing a high school or a prep school uh, teacher, somewhat um, um, unusual in his approach. And as he's talking to all of these privileged kids who are planning uh, and living with anxiety so they can all get into the Ivy League schools so that they can get into the careers that will pay them to get the life that they hope for, the life their parents want for them, that they said that in the movie that we hope we like when we get it. And he says, look, science, law, politics, those are all noble endeavors. But poetry, art, beauty, Those other things that are noble, they are necessary to life, but poetry and art and beauty, that's what we live for. And those are expressions of beauty and of God's providence all related to the glory of God. We can experience joy because of that. And the whole idea that God is weighty and substantive. We live in such a transient world. Some things seem to come, some things seem to go. We don't seem to be able to control anything, but God is substantive and he is not moved. And so therefore, he is stable and we have stability and we have joy all in the glory of God. And Paul is saying here, because we have been justified through faith in Christ, we have the joy of the hope of the glory of God. Now, the word hope itself is confusing to us at times. Because the way that the Bible uses the word hope is not the way that we often use the word hope. For us, the word hope means something that an outcome that we would like to see, but we have no idea whether it's going to happen and we have no way of making it happen. For instance, in our church, there are a number of you who hope for tomorrow night uh, that it is declared that both LSU and Clemson are disqualified and Ohio State wins the national championship by default. That's your hope. Let us admit it. You know, we we use the word hope. I hope so. I hope this thing happens. I hope my team wins. I I hope. And and there's nothing wrong. We understand what that means. And it certainly is appropriate because hope is something that is yet to come. And we want an outcome that is yet to come. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks of hope in terms of certainty. Something that is going to happen because God says it's going to happen. It just has yet to happen. I, I refer to hope as faith focused forward. In other words, faith in the Christian life is looking back to something that has happened in history and then trusting, believing in that and particularly for Christians in the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our faith is rooted in that faith is not just this thing of just believe and, but it's believing in something that has happened and so we realize something has happened we believe that, we trust that that is, uh, that is our, our stability hope is the same thing but focus forward God said this is going to be the outcome this is what's going to happen uh, you don't have it yet Hope is less like I hope my team wins than all of you who have put in a good work week expecting to be paid on payday because, well, you have a reason to expect that. It was promised. The conditions have been met, and you expect your paycheck. God has promised. You didn't meet the conditions unless it's to repent and to believe. But because God has promised, this is it. And Paul says here we who are in Christ, we have reason for the hope of the glory of God. In other words, to see God provide, to bring us joy, uh, to recognize that there is a stability, there is order to this life, and God is working out all things according to his purpose, and you are part of that purpose. You are going to be the beneficiary of that. And that's part of the hope. And Paul is saying, look, we have peace with God. We have opportunity, we have joy, and we can have joy in the hope of the glory of God being at work in our lives. And hope is so important that Paul addresses, perhaps he's anticipating somewhat of an objection, but he says something odd here that kind of relates to this whole idea of we can have joy in hope, it's, it, hope is given to us. When Paul says, we rejoice even in our sufferings. And then he goes on and he shows how that's related to hope. Now, for most of us will read that, if that's the first time we've seen it, it seems like a strange, strange thing. You may wonder, is Paul a masochist here? I mean, who enjoys suffering? I, you know, I know the old adage for workout, no pain, no gain. So you, that part you might. But who likes that in life? You know, life's kind of going smoothly here. I feel pretty content. I hope something disaster happens in my life, my house burns down, or you know, who who lives that way? But that seems to be the implication that Paul is writing here. We rejoice even and our sufferings. And, and so we do one of two things. People tend to either ignore it or they just live with this, this tension. Maybe three things. Or it may be a reason why some people say, okay, I can't buy this Bible thing. And I've and I got to be honest with you, I, I, I can understand. Because while I believe this to be true, If I'm to be honest with you, I would have to confess this, that I would take what Paul says here, and I would paraphrase it, that would be a better description of my life way too often. And I would say this, that we, Paul says, we rejoice in our suffering, because suffering uh, produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. But all too often in my life, I would probably be better off saying this, is you know we have reason to hope, because suffering produces often impatience and anxiety. And impatience reveals my real character. And my real character produces disappointment, despair, and more anxiety and begins the process all over again. I'm comforted by the fact that if you read the writings of Paul, he does the same at times. And so he has to remind himself. He's writing this almost for himself. And, And it may be not just Paul and I, but this may be the reality for you at times as well. Even more so when we consider that the the Greek word here for suffering uh, is the same word as for pressure. And so what Paul is saying here that is the promise that we can rejoice, something that leads to hope, is that we rejoice in the hope that will be developed even when we feel like we're being squeezed by by life. See, we, we look at this and sometimes we cheapen it and say, you know, anything that doesn't kill you will make you stronger. But that's not always true. A number of years ago, I heard a friend speaking and quoted a a a sage wisdom from a a woman in the 15th century. I couldn't remember who, and my friend couldn't remember either when I texted her. Uh, But the, the statement was still true. It is never the trials that make you stronger. It is how you respond to the trials that determine whether you will be stronger or whether you will be crushed. And the scripture teaches that we will have trials in this life, and we have trials, and they also have a purpose. They, they refine, they, they prune us if we stand in grace, stand in faith. And I think what Paul is doing here for every one of us is he's teaching us that we are going to have these trials. Now the question is, how are we going to relate to them? See, we have peace with God, and so we're not looking at our trials and saying, is God trying to do me in? Trials are part of the life, and we can either look at them the way that I am prone to instinctively look at them and try to figure out how to get out of them, or we can recognize trials are inevitable, and we can face them, recognizing that God has provided everything that we need to be able to endure through them, and that endurance is what produces character in life, Because we're enduring, remaining faithful regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. That shapes our character, our lives, which ultimately leads us stronger. And then character, Paul says, ultimately leads to hope because it's the character that has faith to believe that God is at work in and despite whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And we recognize that every challenge, obstacle, trial that we face is now an opportunity as we stand in God's grace to experience the hope of the glory of God in our lives. Every trial we have is not coming because we are out of God's will. It's not inappropriate to be asking have I done something and sometimes there is a direct cause but most of our trials are not but we recognize that God is still at work and is using them I couldn't help but thinking of a line from a Toby Keith song that says this no matter how much your heart is aching there is beauty in the breaking and we have hope to experience the glory of God and that we will be the product that God is producing be the people that we want to be, whether we want to be that or not. Now, we do see here, Paul does something that I find fascinating. At this point, he stops and he seems to turn his attention. And maybe he's anticipating the objections that we might have to what he's saying about hope and about even rejoice in suffering because it, it, it can lead to hope. And, and some of you here may be feeling, look, that that may be true, and that may be what Paul's talking about, but I'm too weak. Time and again trials come and I just I just don't I'm just not able to turn my attention to what God might be doing to shape me so that I can experience the, the joy of the hope. I just, I just constantly feel crushed. I'm done. I just feel, I feel too weak. It just doesn't apply to me. Others of you here might be thinking, okay, well, this is probably true, but you don't know what I've done. I could put on a pretty face, but you don't know what's in my heart. You don't know what's in my past. I'm just I'm just too bad. And still others in a very common way just say I, I feel very very far from God. So you're listing all these things, these these things that we supposedly have because we have been justified because we believe that Jesus has died and rose again in our place. And Paul answers each of those objections and really are the categories of all of the objections that we have because as as you look here in this passage, beginning in verse 6, Paul says this. For while we were still weak, in other words, while we couldn't respond, while we couldn't do what we were supposed to do, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, people who didn't believe in God. People were not hoping in God. People, uh. And he goes on, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, somebody might die. But here, Paul saying Christ died while you were weak. Christ died while you were ungodly, not a good person. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul answers each of the objections that we are inclined to offer toward the promises of God, the things that keep us from experiencing the joy because we are focused on our misery rather than on what God is producing that we can have joy even uh, in the midst of our our suffering. And, And in answering these objections, Paul is demonstrating something that every one of us that is here needs to learn to cultivate in our lives. He is preaching the gospel to himself. Whether Paul had the doubts or not, here in the midst of these promises, recognizing that, look, it's this is too good to be true, and it certainly is not my constant experience. Paul knows that to be the case, and he reminds us and gives us the bullet point. Look, while you were weak and you were ungodly, that's there was nothing about you that should warrant God's love, and yet he loved you and sent his Son when really your behavior should forfeit any love from God at that point. And he's reminding himself of the gospel. And then he goes on as he's writing here. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, in other words, that which has taken place in the past, we've been justified, we're already talking about that. Those who believe that but just are not experiencing the benefits of it Since that's happened, since he's already died, we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the the wrath of God. For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled, and, you know, I feel far from God, he's died for you while you were his enemy. If while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Reminding yourself of the state that you were in when Jesus died and called you gives you reason for the joy of the hope that we have now. The objections that we bring up have already been knocked down. And for those who, look, I'm saying, I believe, but I just don't experience this. I was saying, look, if this was true then. Now that you belong to God, now that you've been reconciled, that's a relationship with God. Now that he's already poured his love out for you, if you benefited from his death, now that he has risen again, that he is alive and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and is at work, how much more benefit will you have? It's not a matter of your strength and your competence. It wasn't before. It's not now. It's a matter of, recognizing that we are dependent and God is at peace with us. We are at peace with him. We have joy because of that. We have joy because we also have the benefits of God that lead to hope that his promises are true. He is at work within us. And learning to preach the gospel to ourselves as a practice does two things. One is it overcomes the the doubts and the objections that we raise to our minds as to why you know, these promises aren't true for us and then it undermines uh, the pride and the complacency that happens when we think well of course god loves me look, you know look at all i do for So paul is saying here in, in this beautiful passage those who stand in grace you are at peace with god you can experience joy you have hope because of the glory of God that you'll see the stability and the work of God at work and your suffering is not an indication that you have forfeited that in fact it's another means by which you can experience God at work in you and despite you but there's one more thing that, God, that Paul says here It is ours we get one more thing if we look in verse 11 we get God himself more than all this, more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And before you think, of course, this is an incredible promise, because most of us relate to God as if He is the dispenser of good things, the things we need, the things that we desire, but as if He is somehow still detached. Even if we think of God as Father, even as we recognize He is our provider, whatever, but we, we, t- we, not, we don't, I don't believe enough of us think consistently. We have God. We are His. He is ours. That's what the reconciliation, the relationship means. And, and what matters most is not that we get all these other benefits peace, joy, hope but that we get the primary benefit, which is God Himself, and it is in God that we receive these benefits. I'm gonna finish by reading a statement by, uh, from an essay of, by John Piper who really, I think, brings this home to give us something to consider. The, the essay was called, Why Do We Want Eternal Life? Why do we want eternal life? One might, one, one might say because hell's the alternative and that's painful. Another might say because there will be no sadness there. Another might say, my loved ones have gone there, and I want to be with them. Others might dream of various things or of more noble fortunes. But in all of these claims, one thing is missing, and that is God. The saving motive for wanting eternal life is given in John 17.3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then here's where Piper begins to unpack something that we need to consider here. If we do not want eternal life because it means joy in God, then we won't have eternal life. We simply kid ourselves that we are Christians if we use the glorious gospel of Christ to get what we love more than we love Christ. God will not be used as currency for the purchase of idols. And this is a, a challenging thing. We need to recognize, though, that God also invites us to see what's in it for us. But in this passage, what is ultimate and that he ends with, what's in it for us is that we get God. It is the paradox that we are invited into as believers. In Psalm 37.4, the scripture says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, the reality is this whole concept has been distorted and abused uh, by prosperity gospel kind of people thinking that God is just the the means to an end. And so delight yourself in God. Okay, I'm going to delight myself in God. Now I can get what I, I really want. But think about the passage for a moment. Delight yourself in the Lord and you will receive the desires of your heart. Well, if the Lord is your delight, then what is it that your heart wants? God. If you delight in God, you will have God because you have been justified, because he's provided Christ as a demonstration of how much he has loved you, to reconcile you, to declare you to be right with God. And in God comes all of these other blessings. He's not merely the dispenser, but he is the source. As we delight in God, we are able to experience peace and joy and hope and your character will be developed that you will become the better person the person that you want to be it is the promise of god rooted in justification that we receive simply by believing and paul says this is the gift to all who stand in grace and so people of god stand in grace not in your strength not in your understanding stand in the grace of God that he has given to you. Father, we come to you with thanksgiving. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you that you do love us more than we understand. We thank you for the promises of provision that you give to us. We thank you that even in your hands our sufferings are not meaningless but produce character and hope which lead to joy. I pray, Lord, that you, by the work of your Holy Spirit, would give us the ability to see through this lens to choose to see with faith when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. Reminding us to remind ourselves of what you have revealed about your love coming to us while we were unworthy. May we preach the gospel to ourselves. May that gospel bear fruit in our lives. To your glory and praise, we pray in Christ. Amen.